Welcome to Level with Emily Reese. This week, you'll hear a special show we made for WYSO Radio in Ohio. They asked us to send them an hour show, and they broadcast it on January 3rd during their documentary hour. Sam and I decided to do a whole new set of interviews specifically for that hour. So here it is. Welcome to a special hour of Level with Emily Reese, a podcast about the music and sound in modern video games. Today, you'll hear from three of the most well-known composers writing for modern games, Jason Graves, Gary Scheiman, and Disasterpiece. They'll talk in-depth about the composers who influence them the most, and you'll hear a lot of music from those influences, as well as from Jason, Gary, and Disasterpiece. Jason Graves and Gary Scheiman both compose for AAA games. These are games with the biggest budgets for development, marketing, production, design, and music. Disasterpiece tends to write for high-profile indie games. All three composers also write or have written for film and TV. Modern games sound different than the early games of the 80s, 90s, and even the early 2000s, as developments in technology allowed more space to be used for music and audio. And while you'll still find games that pay homage to the blocky, pixely titles from those early times, many games have full orchestral soundtracks recorded in places like Abbey Road or Skywalker Sound. It's not uncommon to hear scores played by orchestras from L.A., Nashville, Seattle, London, or Prague. And some composers use the sounds from early video games and make symphonic music with them, like you'll hear from Disasterpiece later. First, though, you'll hear from composer Jason Graves. He's written for AAA games like the Dead Space series, Tomb Raider, Until Dawn, and Far Cry Primal. Jason is heavily influenced by two quite different 20th century composers, Krzysztof Penderecki from Poland and Gustav Holst from Britain. It's funny because my background in school was very, very 20th century, more John Cage than uh, Penderecki. And once I got out of school, that sort of super modern 20th century music really helped me out in, in many instances, but it also made me want to learn more about the earlier instrument-based modern kinds of music, and Penderecki's definitely at the top of my list. Penderecki's most famous piece, Threnody for the Victims of Hiroshima, sounds like this. It wasn't until I was working on the video game series Dead Space that I really got to jump into it. But when I did, <laughs> I had something like five months before I needed to start writing the music. And I had a lot of responsibility in terms of coming up with a really interesting score that was also interactive, but original and, and you know from live instruments playing, not from a, a MIDI-based score. It was going to be live. Mm -hmm. And I spent those four months checking out every piece from the local library, which is at UNC Chapel Hill. They actually have one of the bigger, the second biggest music library on the East Coast. 
And I got all of the scores, and they had five or six books written about him, and I read all of those and was just completely amazed how prolific he is and how incredibly inventive he was, especially, what, 58, I think, was his first piece that Mm -hmm. was officially published, and he was like 27. Wow. He was still in school when he wrote these first couple of pieces, and they won his, like, last year in, in school. He wrote... Emanations, I think it was, and won like the National Polish Music Award. Penderecki wrote Emanations for two string orchestras, but the orchestras are tuned a half step apart. And then two years later is when he wrote Threnody to the Victims of Hiroshima. And I think he was 28 maybe then. 28! That's amazing. You know, it's not just the sounds that come from that. That's what most people, they're reacting to what they hear. But it's also the score and the way he wrote it. Because it was a very, very different looking thing. If you looked at his scores, you would recognize them immediately. Because it's a lot of notation. Like if you're looking at a a lie detector, let's say. You know, you see the scribbles going up and down. Well, that's what he based all of his notation on. That was the only way he could figure to describe, like, this is what I want you to do. Play your highest note as soft as you can. And now I want your highest note as loud as you can. And the scribble would get wider. He invented it, and that's still used today. You can hear some of these techniques in the music Jason wrote for Dead Space 2, a terrifying sci-fi horror game from 2011 I've never even had the guts to play. This track is called Welcome to the Sprawl. If it's not the notation, then it's the way he decided to use the instruments, playing behind the bridge or using different uh, things besides the actual string, tapping the body of the violin. Anything that you want to be slightly tense, if you start talking about horror movies, I mean, it's everywhere. And Dead Space 2 is a terrifying game. You can hear some of Penderecki's techniques in a string quartet piece Jason wrote for the game called Lacrimosa. Probably Penderecki and Holst, to me, are the two that really, really turn me on just because they're so incredibly malleable and you can hear <laughs> influences from them. And if you just have to pick two pieces, sure, Threnody and The Planets. Gustav Holst wrote The Planets from 1914 to 1916 during World War I. This is from the movement called Jupiter, the Bringer of Jollity. And 
What's funny to me is that the Holst is also a 20th century piece. I know. <laughs> I mean, it's about four, four decades earlier, but still. What's amazing about the planets is it's equally as invasive in, in modern music as Penderecki is. It's just the, the opposite. It's not the dissonant sort of thing. I mean, you can hear it in any of the, I mean, especially the first movement, come on, you're going to hear Mars all over the place. planets, it's not just the melody or the harmony or the rhythm. It's all three of them combined. You know, it's the orchestration of the way he uses the meter, the way he uses the melody, the, the tritone. just constantly amazed. I, I find it everywhere. One of my favorite pieces that film composer John Williams did uh, was for the first Jurassic Park film. And he has this French horn solo that's just this great, like, and does this major seven, and I've always loved that. Well, that's straight out of Venus, I think, from the planets. Not the melody or the harmony, but the orchestration, the solo French horn, and then the woodwinds come in. Holst always seems to prevail. I mean, every one of his pieces are just so recognizable, even if you haven't heard them before, because they've really formulated this language of, quote-unquote, telling a story through music, because that's what he was doing. You know, it's like he wrote you know, seven amazingly adept, super-quick tone poems, which is right. sort of the way entertainment music, film, video games, or television needs to be done because a scene in any of those isn't going to last 25 minutes. It's going to be four or five minutes long. Jason wrote this next piece for a game called The Order 1886. It's called Galahad's Theme.
Jason Graves wrote that music for a video game called The Order 1886. It was recorded at Abbey Road in London with players from the London Symphony Orchestra, the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields, the London Philharmonic, and more. Let's talk a little bit about thematic development because, you know, we've we've talked quite a bit about Pendretsky and, and that kind of writing which you are more than capable of achieving. And uh, the other thing that I know that you really love is the ability to like create themes for a bunch of characters in a game, weave them together, and just kind of have like this thematic playground over the course of a, a gaming experience. So talk to me a little bit about that. Well, I inherited my thematic sensibilities from... A lot of Russian composers, it seems. <laughs> I first tackled classical music back in high school through the ballet suites that Stravinsky did. And what I loved about them was they were very programmatic. And this is very similar to what Holst was doing or what Penderecki was doing, because they were literally painting a story for the dancers to dance to. Mm -hmm. So again, you have this very tightly structured work that has themes and just the the way they move, the way maybe a theme is even built into the orchestration. I deconstruct them all, just like as if you were taking apart an engine to a car, sure. and I'd figure out what the chords were and what the intervals were for the melody and where the bass line was, and there was always a cool like contrapuntal thing going on, and mm -hmm. all those were feathers in my cap, just trying to figure out like, okay, I want to do something like. Symphony Number no. Four, Tchaikovsky, like that one melody. I want to do something that sounds like that. It may be a different key and it's different notes and different everything, but the general idea of motion and emotion, I'm basically trying to copy as close as I can. If one percent of what I do can make other people feel the way I feel when I'm listening to these masters, then that's that's a job well done for me. I just want to tell a good story. Jason wrote this piece for 2013's Tomb Raider. From the 2013 video game Tomb Raider, that was composed by Jason Graves. You're listening to a special broadcast of Level with Emily Reese, a podcast about the music and sound in modern video games. Like Jason Graves, Gary Scheiman composes for big blockbuster games. After dabbling in game composition in the 90s, Gary left that medium to focus on film and TV before returning to games in the mid-2000s. He's since composed for titles like Destroy All Humans, the Bioshock series, and Middle-Earth, Shadow of Mordor. He teaches film and video game scoring at USC's Thornton School of Music in L.A. He sent me a list of masterworks from the orchestral tradition influential to his own compositions, including pieces by American composer Samuel Barber, Hungarian composer Béla Bartók, and British composer Rayfon Williams. It's just like we we are in this amazing age where anything can become part of our scores and influence us and very much does. However, these great classical orchestral epic, E-P-O-C-H, epoch that we've inherited over the centuries, is just so spectacular. It's just, it's a cathedral 
of beauty and spectacular, deep human thought. Mm-hmm. And I just love listening to the music of the great and many great composers. And it, of course, it influences me and uh, has an effect. And has, uh, and they, all the, those great concert classical composers, I mean, Beethoven was influenced by Haydn. Yeah. And on and on and on. We're all standing on the shoulders of giants. Gary wrote this piece for Bioshock 2, a game from 2010 that's set in an underwater dystopian city called Rapture. The violin soloist you'll hear is Martin Chalifor, the concertmaster of the L.A. Philharmonic. That was from Bioshock 2, a video game from 2010, scored by Gary Scheiman. Here's Gary. Dimitri Tiomkin won an Academy Award, I think sometime in the 50s or something like that. And typically composers, or anybody who's won an Academy Award gets up and thinks their agent and their director and all the pieces, mm-hmm. people that, that were involved in hiring them and working with them. But Tiomkin thanked Beethoven and Brahms and mm. Rimsky-Korsakov and Strauss. You oh, wow. know, that always struck me as very cool. And, and so I, I kind of feel like those were certainly accurate for him. And I think for us composers in the late and early 20th century and early 21st century, I must add to that list the many 20th century composers that have influenced us. Of course, Bartok, for myself, was seminal in affecting me and inspiring me. And the list that I sent you, I, I put music for strings, percussion, and celesta, which I just think is just so atmospheric and beautiful and dark and wonderful, just rich. And that piece of music, I mean, just every time I listen to it, I hear something new and different and amazing. for strings by Barber just because that sort of extraordinary beauty but it's a different sort of it's a 20th century even though it's very very tonal there's a 20th century um, attitude that he brings that, that, that doesn't sound like 19th century classical music you know And certainly, I would add to him Ligeti and his advanced techniques, aleatoric music, as being very, very influential, especially to us folks who are hired to write scary music, you know. Gary wrote music for 2014's Middle Earth, Shadow of Mordor, a game set in the Tolkien Legendarium. This track is called Attack on the Gate. 
you know, I was just thinking about the whole concert music versus film, TV, game music. And there is a difference. The closest analogy, perhaps, would be like a Bach writing music for the church. It was his day job. He had to write that music. Mm-hmm. And that music was also so exquisitely composed that it, it became part of the concert repertoire. Mm-hmm. But not all music that was and has been written for church is in the classical repertoire. Some of it is very useful for the liturgy, but not in the concert halls, you know. And I think that's true of film and all these, you know, media music. Some of our scores deserve a place in the orchestral hall, but a lot of it doesn't. It's there merely to enhance the projects that they're scored for. The advantage that audiovisual music has is that it's written for an audience. And I think a lot of especially mid and late 20th century music and then early 21st century concert music is sort of written despite the audience. So if you love it, great. But if you don't, that's okay too. Mm -hmm. And audiences have had a lukewarm reception to a lot of late 20th century compositions. Mm -hmm. And it's not what they very often go to the concert hall to hear, although I do. Here's a piece called A.D. that Gary wrote for Bioshock Infinite, the third and newest game in the Bioshock series. concert works too you just you just premiered a viola concerto for crying out loud so i mean there is that outlet too where you're writing specifically for that audience as compared to the the audience consuming a, a medium and there is a difference in the way i write for a concert piece than i would for a score some of my works for various projects game projects especially they do get performed, and I think that people appreciate them and really enjoy them. But they were written, in my mind, I wasn't thinking, well, wow, this is going to be great on the concert stage. It was not even in my mind. It's like, this is going to be great in this game or in this film or television show. Mm-hmm. That's like my first responsibility. And then if it rises above that, then that's pretty cool. <laughs> this is the main theme Gary wrote for Bioshock 2. The violin soloist again is concertmaster from the L.A. Phil, Martin Chalafour. Gary Scheiman wrote that for the game Bioshock 2. It's called Pear Bond. The other thing that is kind of silly to skip over is just the influence of 
the other film composers in the 20th century who kind of took what they had learned from the classical tradition of, of you know, works for stage and kind of transformed that to the, the new medium of film. And, of course, I know two of your biggies are, are Jerry Goldsmith and Bernard Herrmann, right? Yes, two of my favorites, favorite composers that have so influenced me, yes. Yeah, I mean, you, you got an opportunity to write a whole game score based like Bernard Herrmann. I mean, that's that's amazing. That was really fun. I, 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 you're talking about destroy all humans. That was really my introduction into writing game music was destroy humans. Although I had done some music in the 90s, but in destroy all humans, they were actually asking me to emulate his style because the game was sort of having fun with the whole 1950s sci-fi genre. And of course, one of the famous scores was Bernard Herrmann's score for The Day of the Earth Stood Still. So that was their model, and they said, we want something like this, and I said, I said yeah, that's, that's like totally cool. I mean, maybe some composers would go, no, I don't want to write in the style of another composer, but for me, it was like, thank you, thank you, dear God, for giving me this opportunity to write. I mean, that's just, that's just me. I, I just was delighted to get that <laughs> yep. kick. I've just long admired your Bioshock Infinite score and, uh, you know, your your kind of plunge into what classical music must have sounded like in America in, in the early 1900s. And what's it like to get to kind of dig into these styles? I had a bunch of different influences in that. I mean, actually, Stephen Foster was an influence who you wouldn't call a, a classical composer, right. but it was a songwriter from the 1800s, you know, Swanee and all these famous 19th century songs. And so I thought like there's this opportunity to sort of play on his Americana style. And so that was an influence for me. Also just sort of like American folk music in general. So like with some of the themes like Elizabeth's name, I was writing like literally very simple harmonies, like literally one, four, five to some extent. Really open harmonies and major and minor triads, very simple stuff because that felt like uh, Americana at that time. This is Elizabeth's theme from 2013's Bioshock Infinite by Gary Scheiman.
composed that for a game called Bioshock Infinite. The creator of that game is a man named Ken Levine, who convinced Gary to try something new for the combat music in the game. That's the music that plays when you're fighting enemies. And then it was really Ken Levine who, once I, I found the style using small string ensembles, we still thought, okay, well, the big combat music is going to have to be orchestral. But Ken was not buying that. And at first I thought, no, how can you do combat music with a string quartet, for God's sakes? But then I said, all right, let me try this. And then I thought it was genius. He is a genius. Ken is a genius. He's a really brilliant guy. He pushed me to do the right thing. And I'm grateful for that. You know, he said, try this. So I did. And it turned out to be really interesting to do combat music with a small string ensemble, like a string trio or string quartet or vibe. It turned out to be really, I think, a unique way of playing the combat. And it used all kinds of techniques from ostinato to aleatory to whatever, and with percussion added in. So it became a a kind of a unique way, I think, to play the combat. You're listening to a special broadcast of Level with Emily Reese, a podcast about the music and sound in modern video games. Composer Rich Vreeland goes by the moniker Disasterpiece. That's P-E-A-C-E in Disasterpiece. He uses the sounds from early video games called chip tunes to write music. He sent me a list of classical works that influence his compositions, including composers like the Russian Modest Mussorgsky or the French Claude Debussy and Maurice Ravel. A piece like A Night on Bald Mountain is something that uh, I heard at a very young age, you know, in Fantasia, and left left a very, I don't know, it left a very noted imprint on me. Um, it's a piece that I never forgot. I think I saw Fantasia when I was probably three or four, and um, I think... Growing up in a generally sheltered sort of environment, that whole sequence from Fantasia, which is extremely dark, was just something that that stuck with me, I think. grandiose and and covers a lot of territory in a short period of time and so it it kind of fulfilled this feeling I had of you know the potential uh, of music to tell a very wide-ranging story that covers a lot of emotions you know peaks and valleys and things so for me you know that that piece always had a very like emotional impact on me and you know I I can remember a few times like you know by, by the very end of that piece you know becoming emotional just just from the journey of, of <laughs> making it through listening to that piece of music and, and getting emotional listening to music is not something that happens to me very often so when it does happen it's something that uh, I certainly don't forget.
about the the Frenchmen here on the list, the the Ravel Debussy uh, pairing, because <laughs> uh, they they were you know contemporaries, but so different from each other. And and I I personally love them both for for such different reasons. And I'm just curious, you know, your your thoughts on on those two pieces. Debussy was my first exposure to that period, you know, music from that time period and in, in that particular school. hearing Claire de Lune in various capacities and pop culture and movies like Ocean's Eleven and things like that. And um, probably my first exposure to the byproducts of, of that music was before ever hearing their music, but hearing the music that was inspired by it. And so coming to hear that piece for the first time and starting to become familiar with that music, it kind of dawned on me that that music was really important and, and pivotal as far as, you know, a lot of the music of the 20th century, especially popular music. I think along that route, it kind of uh, it kind of led me on a journey looking backwards, trying to find the music that kind of set that standard. And I feel like I not only found music like that and, and you know, at a young age, you know, discovering like the planets by Gustav Holst and stuff like that. And, and, and kind of hearing, feeling like I heard the threads there from there to music that's more recent. You know, hearing a piece like uh, Unbach Solosian, like the Ravel piano piece, I'd never heard anything like that before. It immediately took me to a boat on the ocean. It felt like it captured that feeling so vividly that um, it, it painted a very strong image for me, you know, this kind of visualization through music that, you know, I also get from listening to the planets or WC2. Disaster Peace scored the game Hyperlight Drifter, which came out in early 2016. The game was inspired by The Legend of Zelda, the Nintendo game from 1986. This is a vignette Disaster Peace wrote for Hyperlight Drifter called Visions. Disasterpiece wrote that for an indie game from 2016 called Hyperlight Drifter. I think Ravel has kind of come out on top for me. Is is probably one of the most influential composers for me personally, especially over the course of Fez and Hyperlight Drifter. It's definitely become a part of that palette for me. And um, there's something in the way that Ravel explored different spaces as far as creating his own tonality for a piece of music, creating this like somewhat intuitive sense of a space, of a tonal space, a harmonic space that ex that's going to exist in this piece of music. To me, they were almost like world builders. 
someone who's like building a universe for like a science fiction novel or something like the way that someone like Ravel approached a piece of music. In 2012, the game Fez came out, scored by Disasterpiece. This track is called Sync. Disasterpiece is a fan of American composer Steve Reich, who was one of the pioneers of minimalist music in the 60s. Reich was something I discovered through a friend. When I first heard that music, I would listen to music for 18 musicians at night, like while, while I was laying in bed. And um, it created a very strong image of being in an urban environment. interesting to getting into that music because I got into that right after I was getting into prog rock and people like Robert Fripp and, and King Crimson and to kind of find after the fact that there was definitely overlap in those artists and that they you know had had contact with each other I think it kind of helped to piece together some kind of worldview about how all this these different sorts of music kind of related to each other When I was maybe like 19, Steve Reich did a, maybe it was a 70th birthday concert at Carnegie Hall, a performance of music for 18 musicians. And um, I hadn't really been to many, if any, concerts outside of the realm of, you know, like a rock band or something at that point in my life. So going to see music for 18 musicians as a teenager was a pretty impactful experience. And um, I remember when the piece finally ended, how there was a palpable silence in the hall that felt like it lasted for an eternity before people started to clap. It was an entrancing experience and one that was highly influential in me. I wrote some music around that time that was very much inspired by Reich. Uh, there's a couple of songs on the, on the album level, which I wrote right around that time when I was 19, songs like Eight, the number eight, and Two, the number two. direct result of my experience going to see Steve Reich. When I think in my classical training, you know, I think about an orchestra and the tools in an orchestra and how a composer uses those particular instruments and tools. And the reason we're talking about these composers is because they all did something special with those tools in some way, uh, whether it was a piano or an orchestra. You do a lot of writing at the keyboard, and I'm, I'm curious how it works for you to kind of narrow down the infinite tools 
that are available to you to create palettes for these projects that you work on, whether it's film or games or just a, your, an, a solo album. Uh, how do yeah. you view the tools that are at hand for you? I like to dabble in the various tools that are at my disposal for the actual creation of things, but I tend to gravitate towards a specific one for a project. It's just to keep things manageable and simple, and um, it's challenging enough just to write good music, so I want to create a limitation for myself that is going to be challenging, but also is going to empower me to make music. And, um, you know, on a project like Hyperlight Drifter, for instance, I did most of my sketching on the piano away from the computer, and then I would bring material over. From Hyperlight Drifter again, this is The Midnight Wood, composed by Disaster Piece. Thank you for listening to a special broadcast of Level with Emily Reese, a podcast about the music and sound in modern video games. You can learn more about the podcast and search through our archive of more than 50 episodes with guests including composers, voice actors, audio directors, performers, and more on iTunes, also on Patreon at patreon.com level and at lwer.podbean.com. I'm Emily Reese. Sam Keenan is our producer. Say hi, Sam. Hi. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Level with Emily and learn more about us at june-media.com. And June is J-O-O-N.